Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the Apostle Paul's letter written to the Galatians where we are looking together at chapter 3 and looking this morning at verses 6 through 18. Galatians 3, 6 through 18, you can find that passage on page 1142 in your pew Bibles. Last week, you remember that our focus was upon the Apostle Paul's calling upon the Galatians to remember their experience in both hearing and receiving the gospel message of Jesus Christ. After coming at them with what might be construed as pretty harsh language, calling them both foolish, questioning how it was or who it was that had bewitched them, the Apostle Paul then goes back and he asks them to think back on how things happened when they first heard the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I've said many times as we've been looking at this letter together over the last few weeks, Paul is acting as a father to these people. He is shepherding the flock which had been entrusted to his care. They are in serious error. And Paul is fighting for them like a father who knows that his son or his daughter is dealing with something that ultimately could place their safety, even their very lives, in peril. Paul unquestionably loves these people. And so he fights as one who knows the stakes of the fight. Paul is fighting for their lives. If they are to live their lives to the glory of God before the face of God during their time here on this earth, then they absolutely must understand exactly how it is that this holy, perfect God has reconciled them to himself. They need to understand exactly what it means and how it is that they are justified before Almighty God. And beloved, they cannot afford to get it wrong. And neither can we. It is ultimately their peace. Our peace. It is the motivation to live the Christian life that is at stake here. Martin Luther, I think, rightly said that the doctrine of justification is that doctrine upon which the church either stands or falls. And history, of course, tells us that Martin Luther fought as one who really believed in the same way that the Apostle Paul did, even being willing, if need be, to forfeit his own life, to make certain that the beloved people of God understand exactly how it is that they have been saved. Saved by grace. Saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. And he would never sit back and just allow the the venom of his enemies, or really God's enemies for that matter, to sort of move him into silence. Rather, when the gospel is the thing that is at stake, he is roused to fight like everything was at stake. Because, beloved, it was and it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the reason that you and I can live out our existences on this earth in joy. 
Knowing that it is faith in Christ that justifies us before a holy God and never our own weak, beggarly, all too often pathetic attempts to master the law of God. Paul continues in this third chapter to lay out yet one more avenue of his spirit-inspired defense of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And his defense is brilliantly set before us here when we look at it in its entirety. But I want to be very clear this morning. My emphasis here is not at all upon the brilliance of Paul's argument, though it is a brilliant argument. That's not the focus. Rather, it's upon the fact that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was moved by the very Spirit of Almighty God to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ in exactly this way. We need to see that. Paul's life had been transformed by this very message. And just as the Spirit of God had opened Paul's eyes to the truth of the gospel, so that same Spirit had filled Paul with the knowledge of its centrality to all of life, as well as the necessity of standing up and defending it against any other gospel, regardless of who or even what it was that was bringing that message forward. Now in the text before us this morning, we find Paul having already successfully defended himself against these false accusations that had been made by the enemies of God, these false apostles. And he had begun to stir up the faulty, spotty memories of the Galatians themselves about their own encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way in which they themselves had witnessed firsthand the work of the Spirit of God. He now turns their attention to the witness of the Scriptures and what the Word of God has to say about the truth as he had delivered it to them. And he wants to hold up the truth of God's Word against what they were seemingly so quick to accept from the foolish and wicked mouths of these false teachers. As Paul continues to develop the whole of his argument here, we see him turn from the facts, from the facts to their experiences and from their experiences to yet another building block in his defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, I'm talking about the very word of God itself. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd ask that you follow along with me as I read now Galatians chapter 3. I'm actually going to include verse 5. Uh, I know the bulletin says verse 6. We're going to read 5 through 18 to keep the context before us this morning. Hear now the word of our Lord. Paul says, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. 
But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity that we have to come and to feed upon your word. We pray that indeed it would be food for our souls. We pray, Father, that you would clear from our minds those things that distract us. I pray that we would give our attention to your word so that hearing your word, we might be transformed by it for your glory. And Father, we ask all things for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I've already mentioned, the Apostle Paul has thus far appealed to the facts surrounding both himself and the gospel. He's also appeared to the memories of both his and their own, that is the Galatians' own experiences. And now he turns to that great witness, the witness of the Holy Scriptures themselves. And specifically, Paul takes them to the the great patriarch, Abraham. Paul has asked them here a question about God and the way in which they remember how he supplied his spirit to them as well as the way in which he had worked miracles among them. And he asked them, was it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul is quoting here directly from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And again, we see that Paul is quoting Genesis 15, 6 here as a means of sort of answering his own question. As he reminds them of Abraham and the fact that Abraham believed God. Abraham took God at his word. He trusted God. And that knowing, that trusting, that faith was accounted to him for righteousness. Well, what was it that Abraham believed? Abraham believed God's promise. You remember the story, right? God has come to Abraham in a vision, and he tells him to not be afraid because he's going to be to him as a shield and as an exceedingly great reward. 
And Abraham responds, and he's almost a little bit snarky in his response to the Almighty. And you really get a sense of his own frustration in awaiting the promise of this heir, standing by, watching the days roll by, and the weeks, and the months, and the years. Seeing the the definitive signs of age upon him, and upon Sarai, his wife. And so God says, Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abraham looks to the heavens and he says, Lord, what is it that you will give to me? Seeing that I do not have an heir. I am childless. The closest thing that I have to an actual heir is one Eliezer of Damascus. So that one who is not even of my own house is my heir. Of course, God answers him. And he says to him, Abraham, this one that you have mentioned is not your heir. One will come from your own body. Your own son will be your heir. And then God takes Abraham, this man who thus far in his life has been childless, and he tells him, look up into the starry hosts of the heavens. And he makes this promise to Abraham that all of those stars, so many that you are not able to count them. He says, Abraham, look at the vast number of them and know this. So shall your descendants be. This is the promise of God to Abraham. We are told then in verse 6, Abraham believed God. He took him at his word and it was accounted to him as righteousness. God made a promise to Abraham and by the grace of God, Abraham was filled with the supernatural gift of faith so that he trusted God to not promise him something that God would not or could not deliver. He trusted in whom it was that made the promise. And that was good enough for Abraham. And we are told that that was accounted to Abraham as righteousness. He heard the word of God, and by the grace of God, he wholeheartedly trusted in that word, and it was reckoned as righteousness. And this is what Paul is referring to by the hearing of faith. The word of God is proclaimed. We wholeheartedly trust in that word, in God-given faith, trusting whom it is that speaks the word and in his ability to bring all that he speaks to pass. Look at what Paul says. Therefore, because of this hearing by faith that we know of in Abraham, therefore only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, knowing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Beloved, do you see what the Apostle Paul is driving at? It was the faith of Abraham that was accounted to him as righteousness, the faith that God himself so generously gives, faith that allows him to embrace the truth of the promise. 
We need to understand this is not something that Abraham sort of dug deep down within himself and found. This was the gift of God to Abraham. This was the invading grace of Almighty God into the life of Abraham, and that was accounted to him for righteousness. It was not Abraham's resolve, it was most certainly not his courage, and it was most definitely not his history. It was the gift of faith given entirely by God in his grace. Beloved, we need to sort of pause and we need to see the beauty in that this morning. Do you see it? It does ask us, it does lead us at least to ask a couple of important questions, I think. The questions I think we need to answer as we come to a text like this is number one, what did Moses mean by faith? In Genesis. And what does he mean by righteousness? Those are important questions to answer. They have to be defined if we are ever to find any comfort at all in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're important questions to ask because the way in which we define these two things will most certainly impact the way in which we view the justification that comes or results from faith. By faith, Moses means much more than just that Abraham believed God. And we have examples in Scripture of people that believe God that were certainly not members of the elect. Think of the demons and their reply to Jesus Christ. They certainly believed that Jesus was the Son of God. They had no doubt. They were terrified. But we would never say that they were possessed of the type of faith that would justify them before a holy and perfectly righteous God. Satan himself also had no doubt that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah, that he was the one that the prophets had foretold and spoke of. And when Satan tested him in the wilderness, he continually referred to the prophecies concerning him, Jesus, and said, these prophecies say this about you, so why don't you do this and that thing? But we would not say that that acceptance on Satan's part, that Jesus was most certainly the promised Messiah, was saving faith in the sense that it could ever justify Satan before the face of Almighty God. So we want to make sure that we are very clear from the outset that faith is much more than belief. It's much more than a scent. So what is different then with Abraham? Well, for Abraham, he heard the promise of God and he believed it in faith. That is, he he latched on to the word of God. He knew the word of God and he trusted in what God had promised. It's more than simply a belief in whom or what God is. It is a complete, total acceptance of whom or what he is and the way in which he relates to us. We know that Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of faith. And Abraham exhibits that God-given faith when confronted with the glorious promise of God and it's accounted to him as righteousness. And that righteousness 
By righteousness, we understand that to be that he is reckoned as right before God, accepted by God, not based upon what he has done or even on upon what he will do, but upon the basis of God-given, Holy Spirit-fueled faith in Almighty God to bring about exactly what he had promised. The righteousness of Christ, the promised Messiah, and salvation in him. See, beloved, that's what faith does. That is biblical faith. It is that God-given knowing certain knowledge and hearty trust that the Heidelberg Catechism describes in question 21. What is true faith? Question 21 says, true faith is not only a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a hearty trust which the Holy Ghost works in me by the gospel that not only do others, but to me also forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. That's what faith is. That's what faith does. And it's promised that all of those who believe in faith are the sons of Abraham and thus heirs of the promise of the gospel. It's not just the nation of Israel that can claim Abraham as their father, but all of those who are blessed, all of those who are of faith and are blessed with believing father Abraham. If we are of faith, Brothers and sisters in Christ, then Abraham is our father and we are blessed with Abraham and being under that promise. And Paul contrasts the promise of this covenant made with Abraham and his seed with the promise of the law in verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The promise of the law is that all who are perfectly obedient in the law will receive life. But the curse is that all who do not do all the things written in the law will receive the curse. It's not enough to be 99% perfect in the eyes of the law in order to be blameless in the eyes of the law. You must be 100% blameless without sin. Or the truth of the word of God is saying you are to be blamed and you are to receive that curse of being under the law. And we know that there is not one of us that can make that claim, right? At least I hope we know that. Verses 11 through 14 then should be music to the ears of the one who has looked to the law and found only the curse because of our own inability to keep the whole thing. Look with me at those verses. I want you to hear the reason that we have indeed to be rejoicing this morning, lifting our voices in praise and adoration to Almighty God. Look at verse 11. But that no one is justified by the law is evident, for the just shall live By faith. Paul here again pointing them to the scripture found in Habakkuk 2.4. Yet the law is not of faith, 
but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. (coughs) Beloved, we have fallen far short of the standard of perfect obedience to the law. And therefore, we are all deserving of nothing less than the curse of the law. We deserve the full wrath of God to be poured out upon us because of our transgressions. And yet Jesus Christ has come. And he has taken that wrath for those who are his through faith by standing in our place and receiving our penalty receiving our curse. Though through the law we are guilty and we deserve the curse through faith in Jesus Christ, we get not what we deserve, but instead we inherit the blessing of our father, Abraham. So it's not through trying in vain to perfectly keep the law that we find favor with God. It is through the gift of God-given faith in the promise which is realized in its fullness in Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you hear it this morning? Beloved in Christ, do you understand the implications of hearing it? Does it cause joy to well up in your hearts? Do you know what it's like to try in vain to gain the favor of Almighty God through your own law-keeping. I want to tell you this morning I can. I vividly remember the pain of spending myself in an effort to justify myself, and I certainly remember what it felt like to understand the very clear teaching of Scripture that it was God who justifies me. Not based upon my own horrific failure to keep the law, but upon faith in Jesus Christ who came and perfectly kept the law for me, who was found blameless, perfect obedience in the eyes of the law. And who died as the sacrifice to pay the penalty for my sins, to receive the curse on my behalf that I had earned. I want you to understand this is the grace of God in our salvation and we have to have it to live as Christians. If you can't see the depths of your sin and your misery, give the law of God another look. We are sinners. We desperately need the invading grace of God in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ or anything else we do is a charade. A masquerade, and the only ones we fool are one another. We don't fool God. It should absolutely blow us away every time we come to realize the truth of the gospel. It never gets old. I remember wrestling with my own wicked thoughts and wondering how it was I would ever get past them so that I could finally be blameless. But the day I realized that it was Christ's righteousness that was imputed to me and that I could not 
keep the law because of my being fallen in Adam, that it was faith alone in Jesus Christ and his righteousness that would justify me before God. That day, I can tell you, I understood what Charles Wesley meant when he wrote the great hymn, And Can It Be? And he says, my chains fell off. My chains fell off. The weight of the world was off my shoulders and I trusted in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I can remember driving home that night in the early 90s. I was going to school out at Owens to be a diesel mechanic and coming to this realization and I actually had to pull the car over because I couldn't stop crying. Crying because of my shame and trying in my own foolish pride to merit Jesus Christ. And at the same time, crying because of the overwhelming joy I had in knowing that even though I am like I am, that the Lord Jesus Christ would die for me. The perfect righteousness that he earned under the law is given to me in its fullness through my union with him in God-given faith. Crying because of the relief I had in knowing all along that no matter what I looked like to everyone else around me, I was failing. Christ knew I could not keep the law and he came and he took what I deserved even though he himself in the eyes of the law was blameless. Beloved, do you know that feeling? Are you someone who tries in vain to keep the whole law because you believe that somehow through all your efforts to perform plastic works, you are somehow meriting the favor of God? Listen to me. The word of God is clear. God does not grade on a curve. Anything less than perfect righteousness is not enough. You are either perfectly righteous in Jesus Christ by faith or quite frankly, you are not righteous at all. We have to ask ourselves, are we living self-righteously justified? And know what I'm saying. I want to be clear. If you're living self-righteously justified, you're not justified, right? You don't get it. I'm not saying falling back into a way of life. I'm talking about if you fundamentally believe that the gospel is all about your self-righteousness, you are not justified. You cannot get there from there. You are not now, nor will you ever be good enough. That's the truth. And it's not always easy to see it in ourselves because some of the things that we do when we get like this are really good things. We never come right out and say that we're doing good things because we're falling into self-righteousness. But we say we're doing them because we should do them. You know, I once heard a pastor describe what happens when we forget the, the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it should be at the very center of who we are and what we do as a people. And we begin to become less and less amazed with grace and we get more caught up in the busyness of the Christian life. And this pastor used an analogy that I probably have shared with you before. It really brought it home for me. He compared this kind of joyless Christian existence with the old time variety show plate spinners. 
Now, some of you are too young to remember the old-time variety shows going back to, to Merv Griffin, and then in my day in the 80s, it was Star Search and some of those. You'd get these people that would come on, and one of the talents somebody inevitably would always have was they were plate spinners. You know what a plate spinner did? Some of you are nodding. I know some of you remember the plate spinners. The plate spinners would use different lengths of flexible fiberglass rod And they would get ordinary plates spinning on these rods. And they'd get one going and they'd set it and then they'd grab another and they'd get another one going and they'd set it. And before you know it, the whole stage was filled with spinning plates, plates spinning on poles. And this person was running frantically from side to side trying to keep all the plates spinning at once. And inevitably, just when you started to think that maybe this was the amazing plate spinner who had no equals in this life, inevitably it would happen and one plate would come crashing down. And before you know it, they would all come crashing down. And the plate spinner would walk off the stage wondering how he's going to get one more plate spinning next time. When we as Christians forget the joy that filled us when we realized that Jesus Christ alone indeed had paid the penalty for our sin, that though we only deserve the wrath of God, he came and he took that wrath in our place on the cross. When we begin to live in that way, we start to look a lot like the plate spinners. We go into this mode of being God's busy worker bees trying out of our sense of duty to do all that we possibly can to ensure that, you know, God is smiling upon our efforts. We are somehow meriting his favor that he is up there impressed with our heroics. We'll even take good things and turn those into performance markers. I understand I'm saying these are good things, but we'll, we'll use things like Bible reading and, and prayer time and devotions and family worship and social activism and working in the church and evangelism. And we, before you know it, we've got all our plates spinning. We're frantically running to and fro, trying to keep them all going in the Christian life so we can all be spiritual superstars until they come crashing down around us and we wonder why we ever started spinning plates in the first place. Beloved, I want to ask you if that hits home this morning. Our understanding of the doctrine of how we as sinners are justified before a perfectly holy God should and indeed will change the way in which we live our lives under the sun. And if we believe that there's something that we can do to help ourselves out, somehow cooperate with God in our salvation, we are going to be frustrated plate spinners who spend their lives trying to do just one more thing. Just one more plate in the Christian life. And we are always going to come up short. We will be marked as people known for our valiant efforts, perhaps even for our stoic resolve. We might be known for some personal talents or disciplines in our lives. We might be known for some perceived greatness within us, but we probably won't be known for our genuine joy and for our love of life or our love of one another. 
based upon the greatness of the one who was perfect for us. However, when we see this glorious doctrine as it's laid out for us in the pages of the Bible and in the context of this letter written by the Apostle Paul to his beloved flock in the Galatian church, we will end our striving and our self-serving, our self-motivated, self-glorifying attempts at masquerading as perfect people. And we will bask in the blessings that are truly ours in Christ. We will do good things not for the sake of doing good things, but because it's our joy to do good things. Being recipients of mercy, it's our joy to be merciful. Our hearts will be so full of gratitude for the grace that we've been given in Christ that the joy that overflows from our hearts will naturally propel us towards doing those things that bring glory to God. This kind of life is best pictured not by the plate spinners of this world like the Pharisees, but by that city on a hill that the world looks up from the darkness and sees and cannot help but being drawn to. You see, beloved, this is precisely why we fight for the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand up for its beauty It's why we embrace it in its wonderful simplicity. It's why you and I are to live in the light of its promise. Because as those who by the grace of God have been empowered by his Holy Spirit to behold the glory of its truth, we cannot help but to do it. Beloved, let us live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the glory of Almighty God. Amen.